Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 106. On today's show, I talked to Dr. Kelly Olson about Cleopatra. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, before we get into the show and introduce Dr. Olson, I want to give you a little bit of information about her. Kelly Olson holds a PhD from the University of Chicago and is a professor in the Department of Classical Studies at the University of Western Ontario, Canada. Her research focuses on Roman society, sexuality, and appearance, as well as fashion history more generally. Dr. Olson is the author of several articles and book chapters on clothing and gender and sexuality in Roman antiquity and has published two books on appearance in Roman antiquity with Rutledge. She teaches a popular course on Cleopatra and has lectured on Cleopatra in film numerous times. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. And welcome, Dr. Kelly Olson. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Great. Well, we are going to talk all about Cleopatra today, as I mentioned in the introduction. So, But I, I first want to know, how the heck did you get interested in Cleopatra? I mean, she's had such an influence on history, which we'll talk about, but really it's just like one person. How did you get interested in, in Cleopatra? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm trained as an ancient historian, and my field of interest is gender. So I work a lot on appearance and sexuality. And, mm -hmm. you know, one year I said to my department chair, I'd really like to teach a course on Cleopatra. And she yeah. said, yeah, great, go for it. So in my course, we spend the first half of the semester looking at Cleopatra in history and Cleopatra in ancient art and what the ancients said about her. 
And then we spend the second half of the course looking at the portrayal of Cleopatra through the ages. So how her image gets reworked, you know, from medieval times all the way down to, you know, HBO's Rome and Katy Perry's <laughs> video Dark Horse. So um, I guess it was kind of a natural step for me to move from gender to Cleopatra. And she is a really fascinating historical character. And she's so much more than what we think she is. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So where where did she come from? Where did Cleopatra get her start? Well, she is from Egypt, of course. Yeah. She is the last of the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic ruling house, which took over in the fourth century after Alexander the Great died. The interesting thing about Cleopatra is that it used to be thought that she was the end product of centuries of Macedonian inbreeding because, you know, <laughs> the, the Ptolemies practiced what the pharaohs practice, which was full brother, full sister marriage, you know, so, and that was actually practiced in the general population as well. It's not just something the elite do in Egypt. So, but recently the identity of Cleopatra's paternal grandmother has been called into question because one of our ancient authors says that she was a concubine. And concubines in those days were pulled from the native population, So that's Mm -hmm. very interesting. So she has at least a little African blood in her or Egyptian blood in her. And most recently, the identity of her mother has also been called into question. So we used to think it was her father's full sister, Cleopatra V. The problem with Ptolemaic history, indeed Hellenistic history, is that everybody is named Cleopatra or Ptolemy (laughs) or Berenike. It's just they have like four names. It's insane. But, you know, if we go back to one of the ancient geographers, he says that only the first of Ptolemy XII's daughters was legitimate. And that's Berenike IV. So Cleopatra and her younger sister Arsinoe are not legitimate, which means that they probably are also the children of concubines, which means that Cleopatra has more than a little African blood in her. She may well have been half African. Hmm. So it's super fascinating because, of course, in movies and paintings, she's always portrayed as a white woman or has been. And right. the, the latest casting in Hollywood is Gail Godot as Cleopatra. And I think mm-hmm. she's I love Gail Godot. She's a fantastic actress. But I was really hoping that Hollywood would, you know, sort of push the envelope a bit because most scholars now recognize that Cleopatra does have some native blood in her. So she probably had darker skin than, you know, we are used to seeing Cleopatra being portrayed with. I'm guessing there's not very many like wall paintings, for lack of a better word, or anything like that to really go on that are of any reliability. Or is there? No, they're not. We have coin portraits of Cleopatra, which, of course, are not pigmented, right? They're not colored. And we do have some busts from ancient Rome, but we only think they're of Cleopatra. Like none of them are inscribed (laughs) and none of them are, you know, actually labeled or found in any places where we can safely say, yes, this is Cleopatra. And and we Mm -hmm. do have some portraits of her in ancient Egyptian art, but Egyptian art is so stylized that everybody looks like everybody else, right? So Cleopatra (laughs) just looks like your typical sort of Ptolemaic ruler. She's often portrayed as the goddess Isis. So the, the Egyptian art is really not very much help at all. So the closest we have to seeing what she looked like is probably her coin portraits. You know, this is really interesting to me because as an archaeologist, I feel like the one question I always get is, you know, oh, you must, how much do you like Egypt, right? You must love Egypt. And they're like, well, you're either kind of an Egyptologist or you know nothing about Egypt as an archaeologist. So I'm, yes, exactly. 
<laughs> I'm sort of in the latter camp there. Like I know as much as the next person does about Egypt, right? Yeah. So what is Egypt's history with female rulers prior to Cleopatra? Egypt had a rather uh, long tradition of strong female rulers. So, you know, there mm-hmm. was Hatshepsut, you know, right. in the, I, I don't even know when she ruled, but she was a very strong female ruler, um, a female pharaoh who ruled alone. There was Queen Nefertiti, uh, also long before Cleopatra. But even in Cleopatra's own family, her own ancestors, her Ptolemaic ancestors, there was a long history of very powerful, very strong-willed queens who were also qu- quite ruthless. You know, the, the Ptolemies ran their um, palace kind of like a snake pit. Mm. So, it, it, you know, you either literally killed or you were killed. And so, the you know, when Cleopatra ascended the throne in, in 51, she really probably knew what she was in for because all of her, she had a very long history of strong women and, and of course, male rulers too, who would not hesitate to kill to keep their throne. Right. Wow. That's crazy. So how does somebody like her with her, you know, her background, which some of may may have probably come to light after she, uh, you know, was, was a historical, became a historical Mm -hmm. figure, but how does she come to power with, with that kind of possible checkered past? Mm. Well, her father was Ptolemy the 12th and he uh, was ousted from his throne by the Alexandrian mob who I I love the Alexandrians Mm. because they're so fickle (laughs) and they just don't hesitate to, you know, break into the palace and, and literally bodily throw the ruler out onto (laughs) the the street if they don't like him or her. Nice. So while, while Ptolemy was in Rome trying to get the Senate to put him back on the throne, his eldest daughter took power, Berenike IV. And so when Ptolemy mm-hmm. did come back to power in 58 or 57, the first thing he did was, ha, huh, he killed his eldest daughter. And then after nice. that, yeah, I know, right? Nice. And then he um, took Cleopatra as his co-ruler in 52. Hmm. And when he died, his will stated that she and her younger brother, Ptolemy XIII, were to rule together. And you know the custom of the time dictated that they get married. So they did. He was only, I think, 12 at the time. So mm-hmm. she, she was, I think, for the first little while, effectively ruling alone because her brother was a minor. For sure. Sure, sure. That's all very, man, that's all so interesting to me because, I mean, she's an Egyptian ruler. She's a pharaoh, right? That's just their mm-hmm. name for the, uh, that's just their name for ruler. But don't, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but do Egyptians not see their their pharaohs or their rulers as really godlike figures? Like they, they basically are gods? Yeah, they do. And and in addition, um, the Ptolemies, I don't know much about Egyptian history proper, but the Ptolemies anyway, like to equate themselves with a goddess or god. So Cleopatra equated herself with Isis. So she dressed okay. as Isis sometimes and she was worshipped as Isis in one particular guise. Um, and after she died, she got a ruler cult, which was the thing that they did, you know, when you were a <laughs> pharaoh or a king and you died, they gave you your own cult. So yeah, she was definitely worshipped as a goddess while she was alive for sure. Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's goals we can all strive for, right? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, why, you know, you mentioned when I asked you if there's been other Egyptian female rulers, and of course you mentioned Nefertiti and, and a few others, and uh, I'm like, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Of course, of course, them, right? It, but why is Cleopatra the first thing that kind of comes to people's minds? Why do you think that she is so popular still uh, Mm. as a name. I mean, is it books and films and movies? Just a fun name to say? I mean, what do you think? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think there's a few, there's a couple of answers I could give. So the first is that she Mm -hmm. gets a lot of airtime in the Greek and Latin sources. 
whereas yeah. other Ptolemies do not, right? And and because for centuries classical literature was sort of the the, the foundation of education, I think she's sort of been co-opted into Western consciousness, v- very much as a European ruler, I would say as well. So she's very rarely sort of pictured or characterized as Egyptian. And for centuries, when she was portrayed in paintings, the the, the painters would just portray like a modern European woman. So oftentimes she was blonde and she was dressed in, you know, modern European clothes. Very odd. And the second reason I think is because her story is just so sort of interesting and actually kind of timeless. You know, the the fact that she was involved with these two very powerful Romans and she has a rather tragic life story. But also because it seems to me that, especially if you look at Cleopatra in painting or on film, she does tend to change from epoch to epoch. It's almost like every generation reinscribes their own ideas of gender and womanhood and power on Cleopatra. She's like a blank slate, mm. you know. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So her, her film portrayals down through the years, in, the, in 1917, she was portrayed by Theta Berra in a now lost Cleopatra film where Cleopatra was very much a kind of orientalized seductress and she was like a man killer and, you know, very dark and mysterious. And then in the thirties, we have Claudette Colbert's version where Cleopatra is essentially a witty society lady where she likes to drink and she likes to party and she's, she likes witty conversation. She's just very fun to be around. And then in the sixties, we have yet another version, the most famous, I, I would say with Liz Taylor, where she is very beautiful. And the love story that the movie tells is very timeless, but Cleopatra in that movie is also very much portrayed as a kind of political visionary and the, and the sort of lines that she has during that movie are very much in line with the United Nations rhetoric of the time, you know, one world, you know, living in peace, etc. which no ancient ever said, right? And then all the way up to HBO's Rome 2005, when we have Cleopatra portrayed as a young, drugged out teenager. It's so fascinating. And her hair is cut super short because of the wigs, you know, because she had to wear a lot of wigs. And when I saw HBO's Rome, I was like, oh, my God. So this is what we now consider to be a powerful woman is this this 17-year-old who's high on opium (laughs) and the power of her own sexuality. It was a real eye-opener, let me tell you. Wow. You mentioned her portrayal as a political visionary uh, what kind of a ruler was she in reality was she was she well liked was she not did she make a lot of changes what was her ruling style cleopatra had a lot of political acumen she was very politically astute and this is one thing that I think modern people don't give her enough credit for. So mm-hmm. she was that she spoke nine languages. First of all, mm-hmm. she and Julius nice. Caesar and she and Mark Anthony conversed in ancient Greek. She didn't know Latin. That was not one of her nine languages, but she also learned ancient Egyptian. And she was the first Ptolemaic ruler to ever have bothered to learn the language of the people she was ruling over. It's just amazing. Wow. Yeah. So, so we do know that about her. Um, we also have at least one document from her reign, which talks about tax breaks for a Roman soldier. And at the end is signed Genesthane in Greek in a different scribal hand. And we think it might actually be Cleopatra's hand who signed that. Genesthane <laughs> means make it so, you know, a la, a la Patrick Stewart. <laughs> And and there's other, you know, she she did steer her country through some fairly turbulent times that she ran into 
a couple of economic downturns when it didn't rain and the Nile didn't flood and and the crops failed. So she was a she was a rather strong ruler, and she did manage to stick around on the throne for a good twenty years. So, hmm. so she she was on the throne for around twenty years, presumably. Mm-hmm. What got her off the throne was she died, right? Yes. Uh, she didn't just, yeah. Yeah. So she yeah. lived until about what, 40 then or so? She, Late 30s? She dies in 30 BCE. Okay. At what age? Just out of curiosity. Uh, oh, <laughs> I think she was. <laughs> oh, my spot. God. Okay. I think she's um, 39 when she dies. Oh, I, wow. would, okay. I, I don't know. I, I was a humanities major in college, so I, my math is not that great. <laughs> I, I want to hear that in ancient Egyptian. Answer, so there you go. Um, oh God. <laughs> she, she just became my favorite for basically saying, make it so though. That's pretty yeah. awesome. I, I know it is before. great. Hopefully yeah. she did say that. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned early on, you know, she has a, a tragic life story is, mm. I mean, w- w- let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously dying at 39 doesn't mean you were a raving success mm. and, and something happened, but, but what else about her, her story is tragic and we'll get to how she died and, and what ended right. her reign later. Well, you know, she comes to power when she's um, 18 or 19. Okay. Mm-hmm. If my math is correct. Anyway, she's quite young. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even maybe even younger. Yeah. And Julius Caesar puts her back on her throne in the mid 40s. Her younger mm-hmm. brother and husband, Ptolemy XII, is killed in battle. Her older sister, Berenike IV, has already been killed by her own father, you know, if mm-hmm. by, you know, which is just amazing. And then she mm-hmm. turns around and marries her next youngest brother, Ptolemy XIII. Meanwhile, her youngest sister, Arsinoe, is plotting to take the throne away from her. And in fact, Arsinoe Jeez. has run away from the palace, you know, in the in the mid 40s and is trying to raise an army east of Alexandria to try to come back and take her sister's throne. So it's not the most stable family environment that, that she grows up in. And, <laughs> and later on, she has her younger brother and youngest sister put to death. So by the time mm. she is truly in power, you know, in 44 after her, all her siblings are dead. So that, that's a little tragic, I suppose. And wow. she has three children with Mark Anthony, she dies before her children do. So Mark Anthony commits suicide first, mm-hmm. thinking that Cleopatra has died, and then Cleopatra commits suicide. And what she doesn't know when she goes is the fate of her children, which apparently she was very worried about. And her eldest son, Oct- her, her eldest son, Caesarion gets executed by Octavian, later the Emperor Augustus. Her two youngest Jeez. children by Anthony are the twins. They they go to be raised in Rome by none other than Mark Anthony's ex-wife, Augustus' sister, mm. who really did get the short end of the stick in this whole thing. So, yeah, I think Cleopatra had a bit of a... I mean, she did have a... I think she managed to live five or six lifetimes in the 30 or 40 years that she ended up living. But man, she had a lot of pain and tribulation. Yeah. God, sounds like it. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to take our first break. Let's do that. We'll come back on the other side and uh, continue the discussion with Dr. Kelly Olson. Back in a second. 
Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 106. And we are talking with Dr. Kelly Olson about Cleopatra. So you mentioned her kids. One of them was killed and the uh, twins were raised outside the country um, Mm -hmm. over in Rome, I believe you Mm -hmm. said. And... Mm -hmm. What happened to them? Did they live to have their own descendants? Are there are there Cleopatra descendants today? Mm. <laughs> you probably don't know the answer yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So so Caesarion gets killed. Alexander, Helios, and Cleopatra Selene, the twins, who are Alexander mm-hmm. the Sun and Cleopatra the Moon, are raised by Octavia. And we don't actually know what happens to Alexander. Oh, I'm sorry. She had three kids by Mark Anthony. So there's another one, a little boy called mm. Ptolemy Philadelphia. So he also goes to Rome. So the three of her kids by Mark Anthony go to Rome. Her son was Caesar is the one that's been executed. Uh, Presumably he was too much of a threat to Octavian to be allowed to live, but Mark Anthony's kids are no problem. Okay. So we don't know what happened to the two boys, (laughs) Alexander and Ptolemy. They're kind of a mystery, but Cleopatra Selene ended up marrying the King of Mauritania, whose name was Juba. And recently there have been two excavations run in what was ancient Mauritania in the cities of Volubis and, oh my God, Saul, I think. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that the cities where Cleopatra Selene lived are full of Egyptian ornament. It's really interesting. So some Mm. of it is actually Egyptian, which she must have had shipped from Egypt to decorate her palace. And some of it is sort of um, contemporary copying of Egyptian elements. So it's really interesting because it means that she sort of lived, she took to heart her Egyptian identity and, 
you know, sort of circle back to it after her marriage. So I don't actually know if there, there was a child from the marriage and his name was also Ptolemy. So, so right. So again, everybody is called Ptolemy or Cleopatra and Ptolemy is related to the ruling family in Rome. So he goes to Rome and he calls on his cousin who, who is the emperor Caligula and Caligula has Ptolemy put to death because he doesn't like the fact that this kid, Ptolemy, this person, this cousin, is more richly dressed than he himself is, Caligula. And also, <laughs> Ptolemy has better hair. And so Caligula thinks that he better die because of that. So this is what the Roman sources report anyway. So <laughs> as far as I know, there are no children from Cleopatra, Cleopatra Selene's line. But the two boys, we don't hear anything about. So there may well be descendants of Cleopatra VII wandering around the modern world. Sounds like all we got to do is look at all the humans on the earth and see if there's a Ptolemy that 846, you know, that's a a dead giveaway. Yeah. So (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you brought up the archaeological excavation. Do you know, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here for this, but do you know if, well, could you tell us about any, I guess, Egyptian excavations that are specifically related to Cleopatra or is she just like in the palace with everybody else? And uh, I'm just wondering if there's any specific sites or anything like that Mm. that have been discovered over the years that can directly be tied to her. Yeah, sort of. I mean, her palace and her imperial complex were not in the royal quarter at Alexandria. She built them on the the kind of eastern side of one of the harbors. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that's the side that has slid into the sea over the centuries. Mm. So there are a number of earthquakes over the centuries and all that is now underwater so there's a french archaeological team who's done a bunch of underwater excavation and they found a lot of stuff which again there's nothing inscribed with i belong to cleopatra the seventh but it certainly (laughs) is the right date and so that's all very interesting so we do have that there's also an excavation ongoing out at lake mariatus which is west of alexandria at the site of Tapasiris Magna, where there's a huge temple to Osiris. You know, and Cleopatra thought she was Isis, right? She was worshipped as Isis, and she worshipped Isis. And the team of archaeologists, one of whom is an American, and one of whom is an Egyptian, have started excavating this really huge temple precinct, and they have found Roman artifacts. So there's evidence that the Roman military was there, which is very interesting. Um, And they've also found mummies as well. Not securely identified as Cleopatra and Anthony, but this may well be where their final resting spot is. So I'm hugely excited about this excavation and I really hope it yields results. Well, that leads to a question I didn't even know I was going to ask. We don't know where she's buried. We don't. I mean, the the ancient authors say, yes, I saw the tomb of Cleopatra and it was surrounded by tall buildings and it was very beautiful, which doesn't really help us because they don't exactly say where it is. (laughs) Right. They just say, oh, it was really beautiful, made of marble. So we didn't actually know where it was. And, you know, many scholars think that Cleopatra built her tomb in her imperial complex in Alexandria, you know, i.e. it's down Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the harbor. But some scholars think, well, she maybe would have built her tomb outside of the city like Hatshepsut did with her enormous tomb complex. And so yeah. Lake Mariatus and Tapasiris Magna have been selected as sort of the, a very likely spot. So, yeah, we will see. Well, so the fact that she committed suicide, does that have any bearing on how she was treated when she died? Or was that more, do you think that would have been more of a closely guarded 
secret at the time and the common person didn't know she committed suicide, just that she died mm. and now we have to honor this ruler kind of thing. Because it, it kind of surprises me that, I mean, if you commit suicide today, there's, of course, a lot of stigma associated with that. I mm-hmm. assume there's there has been in the past as well. And, you know, would they still have buried her in her own mm. complex and all that to begin with? You know what I mean? Yeah, oddly, the ancients thought that suicide was the noble way out. So Cleopatra, oh yeah, Cleopatra was about to be um, taken by Octavian back to Rome and marched in his triumph to be jeered at by the Romans and pelted with unmentionable objects and then strangled in one of the Roman prisons. So that was her fate, right? So um, yeah. she took what, the, what even the Romans admitted was the noble way out. And, and she actually got some credit for that from the later Greek and Roman authors that she was noble enough to you know, handle the snakes and drink the venom and, and die in that very noble fashion. I assume that when Cleopatra died, she was embalmed and mummified in the way that, that Egyptians were. The scholarly mm-hmm. controversy sort of circles around what happened to Anthony's body, who died, he died a few days before Cleopatra. Some scholars think he would have been cremated because that's what the Romans were doing then. Others think that no, because he was in Egypt and because Cleopatra, you know, sort of oversaw the arrangements that he would have been mummified. So, yeah. So we just don't know what happened to Anthony. Man, it's so crazy with all the Egyptian architecture mm-hmm. and just like records and the, the whole Egyptian history that we have mm-hmm. that we still don't know basic fundamental questions like where was Cleopatra buried? Yeah, I you know, know, right? It's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, man. So many things are being discovered all the time out there, mm-hmm. too. So. What is one of the most surprising aspects to you about Cleopatra's life? Like you teach these classes and things like that. What are mm-hmm. what are just some some things that are special to Cleopatra that you can think of that stick out? Mm. Well, her personality is an evidence like right from the start. So when mm-hmm. she comes to the throne in 52 with her father, and then when she's on the throne in 51 with her brother, she gets ousted shortly thereafter by her brother's advisors and his, his cronies, you know, his sycophants. And, you know, far from slinking away in shame, she goes up into Syria and Palestine and starts raising an army to get her thrown back. I mean, she is just a very resourceful, very strong-willed woman. And she gets portrayed today as basically being all about sex. And it's just, she's just so mm. much more than than that. And, and I really do blame the, I mean, I blame, I blame the ancient <laughs> authors for, 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 for part of it. But the interesting thing is that in paintings anyway, Cleopatra just gets more and more eroticized and more and more sexualized mm. as the centuries go on. So, so for instance, we know from the ancient authors that she dies by a bite to the wrist and she dies fully clothed, dressed in her royal robes. And by the mm. end of the 19th century, the paintings that you see of Cleopatra have her dying like buck naked and holding the snake to her breast. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so inaccurate. <laughs> so, so she just gets increasingly sexualized down over the centuries. And, and that mm. sort of, you know, leaks into 20th century um, cinematic portrayals of her, I guess. Well, that's that's so surprising to me. Well, mm-hmm. I guess it shouldn't be surprising that she was seen that way historically, but mm-hmm. not surprising was the fact that Hollywood did that because that totally makes sense uh, yeah. just from an early Hollywood standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That is a little surprising how she was portrayed that way throughout uh-huh. history because there's always uh-huh. there's always a little nugget of truth to things and it makes me wonder about, mm-hmm. you know, how she may have portrayed herself you know, when she was ruling and, uh, cause we just don't have records like that. So yeah, that's it's, true. Uh, we don't. it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. 
what what about her what about i mean she ruled egypt for nearly 20 years and and was in the you know living in the living in the palace for her childhood up Mm -hmm. until that point so Mm -hmm. Uh, are there any lasting impacts that she made on Egypt, like uh, any sort of, uh, I don't know, policy or anything else like that, that we can just attribute to Cleopatra? Because a lot of things you've mentioned so far, sounds like she was fighting over just keeping her throne, but <laughs> did mm-hmm. or, or getting back mm-hmm. to it or doing things like that. But do you right. know if there's any lasting impression she made on the on the country in the area? You know, I can't think of any offhand. The problem is that, you know, I'm sure she made an impact architecturally, but her palace quarter mm-hmm. is below the water, so we can't even oh, yeah. say that much. And and we do have, you know, relief, some reliefs and some temples in which she has carved her image and her name. But again, they, they all look like your basic the Egyptian god or ruler. So I can't mm-hmm. even say that. I mean, I suppose the biggest impact she's had has been not in... Egypt really but in western culture I mean she she is I think really the only Ptolemy that most people are going to know and that's because her story was made so famous by those Greek and Roman authors Okay. Sounds good. Well, one of the reasons we we got put in touch with you is because of an upcoming show on the CBC, which I think is Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm sure people down here in the States can find their way over to that uh, if they're listening Mm -hmm. or we have a worldwide audience. So hopefully we'll have some links that will um, Mm -hmm. lead them over to that show. Mm -hmm. But how did you get involved in this and, and what was your what was your part in it? Well, I did an episode of The Nature of Things, which is a CBC production with the environmentalist David Suzuki about four or five years ago. We we went to ancient Pompeii and there was a whole bunch of us and we took David Suzuki and and also uh, there was we did a British version as well for ITV. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up taking David Suzuki around the Pompeian brothel, which was just really (laughs) a hoot. And so so that finished and was aired and it was really great. I loved working with CBC. And then one of the producers contacted me and he said, we'd love to do another ancient city like the one we just did with you. And can you suggest anything? And I said, well, really no, because Pompeii is in such a fantastic state of preservation. There really is nothing like it in the whole of the ancient world. But I said, you know, it'd be really interesting is if you did ancient Alexandria, because then we could talk about Cleopatra. And and Mm. the reason that the reason I suggested it is because (laughs) I really wanted them to fly me to Egypt, you know, and talk about Cleopatra, but that did not happen. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, it did not happen. So again, there it was. It, there's a huge amount of people involved in this, and um, so I spoke a little bit uh, at the studio in Montreal. But they did send a team over because they filmed some of the excavation at Tapasir's Magna. So oh, okay. it's I think it's going to be really good. I've seen the the early rushes and it looks really good. And you don't have to have nice. any specialist knowledge of Cleopatra because it really just starts from, you know, we all know her name. What's the woman like behind the name? So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting, I think. Nice. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about what's on the show, but first I got to say, because this is so crazy, maybe not that crazy because Pompeii is a, yeah, it's a pretty well-known place. If you go to Naples for any length of time, you got to end up in Pompeii. Oh, you totally do. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually been in twice, um, a Pompeii brothel. I know once in 96, when I was in the Navy, which sounds very cliche, Uh um, you know, Navy guys (laughs) going to a brothel, but this was an ancient brothel. So yeah, totally. Okay. (laughs) I know, before I was even an archaeologist, I knew what I was doing. 
<laughs> and then just, just, I think three years ago or so, when my mm-hmm. wife and I spent about three and a half weeks in, in mm-hmm. Naples, just oh, working fun. with a friend of ours there. Mm-hmm. And we of course went down to Pompeii cause she hadn't been there. So that's crazy. It, it would be, oh. I, I've never gone there with like somebody who actually knows what they're talking about either. Right. And, right, uh, right, and do stuff. Right. it's just like this last time was a self-guided tour, which was kind of cool. The first uh-huh. time there was nothing like that. Um, I don't even remember it cause I was like 20, 21 yep. or something. Yep. But, um, yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's a crazy place. It is amazing. Yeah. One of my one of my colleagues calls it the Disneyland of antiquity because oh it's where everybody goes and it's always really crowded and there's no maps and everybody gets lost and yeah, it's yeah. it's a crazy place. Like great stuff, but it's it, you need like literally three days to do it properly because <laughs> it is a huge site. Yeah. Yeah, and they're uncovering yeah. more all the time too. So. Yeah, they absolutely are. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. new excavations right going on right now. So yeah. Right. Right. So, all right, well, let's take a short break real quick then, and we'll come back on the other side and and talk a little bit more about the upcoming special. So back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 106 with Dr. Kelly Olson. And let's talk a little bit more about the special for anybody that wants to head over there. So you mentioned what your role was in in segment two. What is this show about? How does it start? Is this just Cleopatra's life from start to finish? Or what is the focus here? Because this is like a one hour special, right? Yeah, right. It does touch on most aspects of Cleopatra's life, but it's very dramatic. And it really talks about the things that we don't know, like where was she buried? And, you know, is she just a sexy seductress or is she more than that is she like what was what what was ruling Egypt like for her and what was her education like and what was her early childhood like so it really does delve into quite a bit of detail into in Cleopatra's life Mm -hmm. nice nice Uh, and it's it's really kind of a a retelling of all this then no uh no earth shattering Mm -hmm. theories or evidence revealed in this show (laughs) well no except for the excavations at uh, Tapestris Magna so that it was great for me to see those because I'd seen like stills you know over the over the last couple yeah. of years, but I hadn't actually seen the site itself. And there, oh, and there's some great CGI in the in this in the show where oh, they cool. recreate ancient Alexandria and they recreate the tomb and they recreate the big ship that she sails up the sails up to Tarsus to meet Mark Anthony for the first time. And oh yeah, it's really mm-hmm. it's good stuff. Where is I'm not familiar with the name of the excavation that's taking place. Is that near Alexandria, present day Alexandria, or is, or where's that at? Yeah, it's east of the city on the shores of a lake called Lake Mariottis. So yeah, it's outside the city. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, it's outside that's the right. city. Yeah. Yeah, man, I I mentioned in the last segment that I was uh, in the navy. That was on a Mediterranean mm-hmm. cruise, so we were on. We went to all kinds of sites, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what. We were supposed to go from, we were in Turkey, Antalya, Turkey. We were supposed to go from there over to Alexandria. And I was, I wasn't even an archaeologist yet. Hadn't mm-hmm. even gone to college or anything. Mm-hmm. I was like 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to stop in Alexandria, but Saddam Hussein did some sort of muscle flex or something like that over <laughs> in the Gulf. And oh, God. We had to cut out like, I know we had to cut out like four weeks of our trip oh, just to get through the Suez Canal. That's too bad. I know. And we lost Alexandria. That's too bad. Yeah. I would love to go. I've never been. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to go. Oh man. Yeah. Going through the Suez Canal was fun though. Getting ready to get, get to see Egypt on one side and what is it? Saudi Arabia or something. I can't even remember. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. So 
I guess my question from here would be, where do you, where would you like to go? You know, with your, with your research? I mean, I know you're teaching classes and things on mm-hmm. Cleopatra. We're going to link to some of your resources. I took a look at your website on the um, university <laughs> page. You've read about Cleopatra quite a bit. Are you working on anything right now that's furthering that research? You know, I don't actually research Cleopatra. I teach Cleopatra. Nice. So I don't actually publish on her. I've given like a ton of talks, you know, around North America because she's such a popular um, figure and I have this lecture which okay I like to flatter myself that it's a pretty good lecture I don't know it's on Cleopatra (laughs) on film and I look at Cleopatra in cinematic treatments from like 1899 all the way up to 2013 um, with Katy Perry's video so so that's a fascinating lecture and I'm really glad that I had to teach Cleopatra because you know, I've always said that you don't really understand anything until you have to teach it to someone else. So I, right. I became I became really well versed in all things Cleopatra. You know, the semester that I taught that course for the first time, and I'm like, okay, well, I have to figure out when she was in Rome and why she went to Rome and how long she was in Rome, and I have to figure out, you know, all the theories surrounding her death and where they think she might be buried and what did she actually look like. So yeah, so I don't research Cleopatra, but I do teach her and I lecture on her an awful lot so so then here's the real question then when you dress as cleopatra for halloween <laughs> which cleopatra do you dress as oh my god this is so <laughs> funny because <laughs> because like eight years ago my faculty here at the university of western ontario did a fundraiser it was a plated dinner fundraiser and the theme was the 1920s mm-hmm. and all my colleagues are like i'm gonna go as a flapper and I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go as Theta Barra as Cleopatra circa 1917. <laughs> so that's what I did. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. crazy. Yeah, it was a crazy costume. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Nice. Well, I think I think we'll call it there. I want to leave okay. our audience with one thing. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite thing about Cleopatra or, or better yet, what thing would you like our audience to know as like one takeaway if they took nothing else away Mm. about Cleopatra you want them to know? Well, I suppose we will never really know what the historical Cleopatra is like. We don't have anything written by her hand. We don't have her memoirs. We don't have any memoirs from anyone close to her. We just have her, image you know reflected in various authors from antiquity and in painters and filmmakers so we're never going to know the real cleopatra and in fact you know the myth of cleopatra is a myth really which almost starts within her own lifetime so you know even in her own lifetime she was always very concerned at least according to the ancient authors to do things as large as possible you know do throw the biggest Mm. banquets and be the best lover and die in the most dramatic fashion. And so I don't really think we're ever going to know what she was really like. So all we can do is look at the many masks which have been put on her. Very good. All right. Well, Dr. Kelly Olson, thank you for talking Cleopatra with us. And we'll have links in the show notes regarding the CBC series and links to your resources as well. Thanks again. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, 
Thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.